This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Washington journalist Matt Stoller about his new book, Goliath, a history of the 20th century struggle between monopoly and democracy. Your book, Matt, explains how and why the American democracy is destroyed by the monopoly power of concentrated wealth. It's an old story, and you tell it with compelling force. Socioeconomically, we're back where we were in the gilded cage at the end of the 19th century. We escaped it briefly with the help of the New Deal in the middle years of the 20th century. But then in the 1970s, the monopolies regained control of our lives, liberties, and pursuits of happiness. Maybe you can begin with a brief summary of where we are now, and then we can go back to the story of how and why we got here. Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. And um, I, uh, if you look around the world today, what you will see is a crisis, which some people call a crisis of capitalism, but is really a crisis of monopoly. So in every market that we operate in, that we buy things in, we sell things, we produce, uh, we create ideas, everything from search engines to social media, to airlines, to cable, those are the big markets, is monopolized, controlled by a small group or one person. But then it's not just that, it's, it's small markets too. It's things like peanut butter or syringes or missiles and munitions uh, or bank management software. And, and these are monopolies or oligopolies and they control our markets. And they kind of, um, what these are is, is these, are, these are private governments. We are governed by a small group of people through our markets. And this is not an understood political story. And so we are all kind of angry and frustrated at these kind of invisible bars that we kind of can't see, but are constraining us, controlling us. And monopolies do a number of things. They, they transfer wealth. So you have income inequality, wealth inequality, but you also have regional inequality. You have less business formation. You have less productivity. Business people, engineers, they feel constrained. They feel controlled. So that's the crisis that we're seeing right now. And monopolies also corrupt our society. So we're seeing an extraordinarily corrupted political system. And this is a global problem. Now, my book, Goliath, is a, is a history of how we got here. And um, so, it, so the first half of the 20th century uh, and the late the 1890s up to the 1930s, we had this problem before. Uh, we called these monopolies, we called them robber barons, and we were able to free ourselves and restore a, a democracy or an imperfect democracy, but a democracy. And that's the first half of the book, how we were able to do that and those battles. And then the second half of the book is why we allowed these monopolists to come back. And it started with some ideas that were formed and in, in organized in the 1950s, but that came to full flower in the 1970s. And then the policy changes happened from the 80s all the way up to today. And you roll those changes forward 40 years, this push for concentrated wealth and power, and you have the world that we live in now. So it's a book for hope. It's a hopeful book because it's about how we have this, have we had this problem before, how we solved it before, and why it came back because of decisions that we made and how we can choose to free ourselves again if we want. I take the point. I mean, I mean, your last chapter ends on that hopeful note, and I share it, and I see signs of that hope spreading uh, among other people, and I think you see the same. 
I absolutely do. I am, you know, John Adams, he sent a a letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1815, and they were talking about the American Revolution. And Adams said, you know, the revolution was not about the war. It started in the years before the the war in the minds of the people, in the newspapers, in the pamphlets, in that debate. And that's really where we are now. It seems bad right now, but we're having this debate in every area of politics, in the left, the right, uh, in different ethnic groups, in the Pentagon, about whether we want to be controlled and constrained by a small group of people. And I think people are coming around to the idea that, no, we don't. And in, in order to get away from that, we have to, we the people have to step up and start governing again. So I, I'm an optimist on this. I think it's really happening. It's just, it's not obvious because it's a very noisy environment. All right, so let's go back and tell the first half of the story. Where were we in 1912? Yeah, so 1912 was an amazing election because it really was the set the foundation for corporate America. So corporate America was formed in a merger wave in the 1890s, so 1895 to 1904. That's when most of the big companies like General Electric were formed. And that was a merger wave largely organized by J.P. Morgan. And this caused a lot of problems. Teddy Roosevelt kind of tried to manage it from 1901 to 1909, and that, but not enough. And by 1912, corporate power was the focal point of the election. And it was a kind of like the founding father types of the 20th century. That election, it was three philosophies. It was Taft, leave them alone, have private masters who are running these companies. Uh, the monopolies are, you know, do a little bit of antitrust, but that's it. And then you had uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who said, let's regulate these monopolies, put the power in my hand, fuse big business in the state. This is not understood. People think Teddy Roosevelt was a trust buster. Uh, He did not like antitrust. He did not want to break up companies. He thought monopolies were natural, but he wanted to regulate them. And then you had Woodrow Wilson, who was basically used Louis Brandeis's philosophy, Louis Brandeis, the people's lawyer, later a Supreme Court justice. And what he wanted to do is is say not public masters, not private masters, but no masters. We are going to break up these companies and then we're going to regulate the business practices so that there are open and competitive markets so that nobody may dominate uh, anybody else. And that so we may be a free people. Uh, And that's that's Woodrow Wilson won. And ultimately, that is eventually the direction that uh, the corporate state uh, that, that we actually went. Wilson broke up AT&T. He um, uh, beefed up antitrust. He start, created the Federal Reserve, created the Federal Trade Commission, passed the, the Clayton Act, which was about mergers and price discrimination. Uh, he started to bar uh, child labor. He did a whole number. He put Brandeis on the Supreme Court. And he was actually going to probably end up putting William Rockefeller in jail. But World War One interrupted. And World War One was this um, – it was such a big deal that the U.S. stock market, when the war broke out in Europe, the U.S. stock market shut down for six months. And it completely changed the trajectory of global politics as well as American politics. And by the end of the war – I mean Wilson brought the U.S. into war and, and he, he, he re-centralized power, largely in the hands of big business um, that he had forsworn – when he ran for office and it was just sort of this catastrophe and an incredible moment of, of disillusionment for the people by 1920 when Woodrow Wilson was lying on his basically his deathbed. He had a stroke and he was in, you know, couldn't do anything for the most of for the last two years of his presidency. And and the, the country was incredibly disillusioned uh, after 20 years of attempted reform. You know, and, and Wilson was like, we're going to do this in America and then we're going to do it globally with world the world war. Uh, and the Treaty of Versailles, we're going to we're going to take on the aristocrats at home and abroad. You know, this will be peace as we're laughing global, you know, at war to end all wars. And it was just a catastrophe. 
And then you had the 1920s as a result. And the 1920s political reaction against 20 years of, of reform that people perceived to have failed was this very scary corporatist decade. Again, all over the world, my, Goliath, in my book, I focus on the, the US, but it was a corporatist decade. It was the decade when Mussolini came to power in Italy, the Beer Hall Putsch in Germany. And then in the US, it was a return to what Warren Harding called normalcy. And Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover were the three presidents. But really the power behind the throne was this was the Treasury Secretary, who is a guy named Andrew Mellon. He's the guy that put Alexander Hamilton on the $10 bill. And um, he was the third richest man in the country. He owned three Fortune 500 companies, including Gulf Oil uh, and um, uh, Al the aluminum monopoly Alcoa, and then another company called Coppers. He owned a network of banks. He was basically a private equity baron. And then he added to that when he became Secretary of Treasury, control over the, the tax bureau, and control over the Federal Reserve. And so he was one of the most powerful men that uh, has ever existed in America, at least in the 20th century. And he used his government power to benefit his own, uh, his own corporations. There was a lot of self-dealing. He used taxing in very punitive ways. He gave himself large tax cuts. He gave his friends large tax cuts. Uh, he used foreign policy to get uh, concessions for his own oil companies in, in Colombia. There was just a lot of really dirty stuff. But because of the profound disillusionment that was going on in the 1920s, there was this Walter Lippmann wrote a couple of books saying democracy is a bad system. Uh, the U.S. Army talked about the threats of democracy, how it created you know, demagoguery and, and whatnot. There was just this belief. There was just this total cynicism about politics. It was also the decade when the KKK was massive. It was millions of members. And the mayor of Portland, Oregon and Portland, Maine were both KKK. And part of the reason was you saw this massive agricultural depression. You saw attacks on workers. You saw this, this it's a really scary decade. It's known as the Roaring Twenties, but it was a really frightening decade. And it was controlled by Andrew Mellon. The joke was, you know, he served under three presidents or in reality, three presidents served under him. Um, and I guess I'll just finish with the, the 1920s by saying, you know, Pat, um, uh, Andrew Mellon's brother, who is his name is Richard Mellon, and he basically ran the businesses in uh, in name, but not form. Andrew Mellon was really running them from Treasury. Uh, you know, he he was testifying in a Senate hearing about violence in the coal mines uh, in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And a senator asked Richard Mellon, he said, could you run a coal mine without machine guns? And Richard Mellon said, I don't see how you could. And then he caught himself. He said, oh, I, I didn't mean that. Um, but he was controlling. They were controlling um, business in America as, as well as workers in America. And it was this extremely interesting and dangerous time of monopolies and disillusionment. Um, and that that's like Andrew Mellon is kind of like the one of the characters in the book who casts sort of a long shadow uh, over the 20th century, this this system of private and public power fused together, which one of his enemies called Melanism. Um, and it, it's a lot like the system we see today. Today, in, in most people's or many people's minds, Mellon is, you know, the the great philanthropist, the the uh, the Mellon Foundation, the uh, great benign presence and and. We remember the twenties in terms of of the great Gatsby, and and if you want, the twenties are really a very ugly period in in American history, and and you get it if you read Dos Passos USA, but you don't get it 
from Fitzgerald. I mean, we have this sunny, uh, everybody happy, good time, Charleston uh, 20s I mean, idea. And, and the uh, one of the fine things of your book is to remind us that for most people in the United States, that is not the way the 20s looked or felt. It's the only time I think that you've ever seen the use of uh, bomber airplanes in the U.S. and it was to attack uh, strikers in West Virginia. Um, so it's like it, it, it's a very it, it's a very weird and interesting decade. It's something I didn't expect. I didn't realize how dangerous and scary that decade was because I bought into the narrative you you laid out. Thopper girls. All right. Yeah. Right. And they. Okay. So now comes the crash of 1929 and the. Essentially, the stupidity and greed of the American uh, monopoly crowd is what brings us the Depression and brings us Roosevelt. And talk a little bit about Roosevelt and Brandeis and the coming of the uh, the New Deal and the election of 1932. Sure. So... So throughout the 1920s, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was first this kind of this character who had he had run for office as the vice president in, I think, uh, in 1920. And he was this uh, he had his cousin, his, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's last name and a distant, distant relative. And then he got uh, handicapped. He lost the use of his legs through polio. And um, he effectively was kind of like wandering around, but a popular Democratic figure. And he then eventually became governor of New York and got into fights with J.P. Morgan and Andrew Mellon over power resources in, um, in, in New York. And it was really electric utility. There were fights over electric utilities. That was kind of like the that plus aluminum and chemicals. Those were like the high tech industries of the day. And then when when the the you know, the. The stock market crashed. There was a brittle banking system, an unregulated brittle banking system, and there was a lot of gambling with other people's money. National City, which is Citibank, was involved. Basically, one thing you know about uh, American history for financial crises is is three rules. One, somehow they always involve Florida real estate. Um, two, they always involve Citibank, and they always involve uh, leverage. That's one thing that I found. It's just always – you always have those things in, yeah. in the 1920s and then 2008. They always involve that. Um, so uh, so in, in you see this collapse of the banking system and Herbert Hoover is just kind of terrible. But the, the Democrats had been an anti-monopoly party under Wilson, but they've collapsed into this squabbling group that is fighting basically over social issues and social questions, largely prohibition and the KKK. And the pro-monopoly forces in the Democratic Party have taken control. In 1932, uh, and, and we can get to what Patman did. There were people that were doing this before Roosevelt came in to run the party. But there was a bitter battle within the party between Al Smith, who was Roosevelt's uh, rival and was funded by the DuPonts. He had been the Democratic candidate in 1928. And Roosevelt. And they were arguing over what their strategy should be in the face of this just catastrophic meltdown where you had, you know, starvation and, you know, just like cities running out of of um, of money. And then you saw like Nazis emerging in Germany. You saw this just chaos all over the world. And like people just at that point were, were saying, well, maybe we really do need a dictator to come in and take over. And that was like the context for what was happening in the country 
um, when the banking system, the heart of commerce was was freezing up. And what what the the Democrats had this choice. And Al Smith said, this is a great chance for the Democrats to reorient politics. We can become the party of big business. We can get all those donors from the Republican Party and make them ours. And then we'll be in control of our country as long as we don't run on the economy as long and, and as long as we run on prohibition. And then FDR and, and his allies like Cordell Hall, who's a progressive from Tennessee and, and a whole bunch of others, basically people in the South and the West said, no, we want to run on the economy and we want to reorient politics and, and make politics about we the people versus the plutocrats. We don't want to be the party of plutocracy. And they had a bitter fight, basically a Democratic primary in 1932. And uh, it was a very, very closely fought fight. And FDR ended up winning at the convention because, weirdly enough, Herbert Hoover intervened to throw the convention to FDR. He secretly intervened behind the scenes uh, because he thought that FDR would be the easiest candidate to beat. So it's this very weird story of, of a very bunch of really close calls about how the populists ended up taking control over the Democratic Party. And then Al Smith and his uh, allies, they didn't say, oh, well, FDR, I guess, you know, good for you. We've all learned. No, no. A few years later, they were basically, you know, Al Smith ran something called the Liberty League, which was a super right wing dark money group designed to destroy FDR and the New Deal. So the, the party actually split and the a big chunk of the plutocratic wing broke off and became Republicans. Um, so that's FDR, and that's the 1932 election. And, and Brandeis says to him, we must make our choice. We, we, we can have democracy. We can have concentrated wealth. We can't have both. That's right. Brandeis plays this role, right? So Brandeis has fought J.P. Morgan in the 1890s to the 19-teens, gets on the Supreme Court, and then plays this kind of like – almost a biblical prophet type of role. Uh, FDR referred to him as Isaiah, and he sort of spans the Wilson administration to the F- to the New Deal, kind of what people called him was the first New Dealer. Um, and he teaches a lot of, you know, other people's money, the bankers and how they use it, which is an important book that comes out in 1913 uh, about the money trust, which was an investigation of the big banks and J.P. Morgan. He reissues it in 1932. A lot of the New Deal policies in 1930s, which are designed to break the power of these oligarchs, those policies started in the Wilson administration and they never got to finish them. Uh, so, yeah, so Brandeis kind of spans this world. FDR really looks up to him. Brandeis inserts a lot of people uh, who are his disciples into the New Deal. And he teaches uh, and, and actually writes a lot of opinions that are that are important in terms of creating a legal infrastructure for democracy. Industrial democracy is what he called it. All right. So th- there are three or four para- uh, chapters in the middle of your book that, uh, about the success of the New Deal and the New Deal Constitution and the impeachment of the old order. So take us through the years 1932 to the end of World War II uh, and kind of summarize the what the structure and the attitude of the New Deal is and how it takes down the monopolistic uh, structures of the 20s. So in 1932, you basically have four large financial alliances, conglomerates slash holding companies who are running American economics and politics. It's the Andrew Mellon. It's the the bank J.P. Morgan. It's uh, the DuPonts and it's the Rockefellers. 
right? And through a range of financial instruments, they're essentially controlling everything. And the New Deal, I sort of realized this as I was researching. I was like, oh, the New Deal is not about setting up an administrative agencies and unionizing and all these different things like building a big government. Like that's the way that I think liberals look at the New Deal. It was certainly that it did have those effects. It was a gang fight, though. It was a gang fight between populists and these oligarchs. And they set all these things up so as to defeat the oligarchs because they were looking at Italy. They were looking at Germany. They were looking at Japan. And they realized these oligarchs are happy to finance uh, a domestic Mussolini. Like Andrew Mellon in 1928, when he was campaigning for Hoover, would talk about Mussolini and how, you know, that was the Republican, you know, if you want prosperity, the party, which, you know, this, what you're seeing in Italy, like of, of, of that wealth, you know, that's the Republican Party. Um, we don't agree on everything. But if you want the Soviets, right, then that's the, the, the sloth and destruction of capital. That's the Democrats. Like this is what they were running on in the 1920s. And so the New Dealers very much understood what the stakes were. And the stakes were not, oh, we lose an election or two. The stakes were, you know, fascism, right? That, and, they, and they knew that. Um, so in, in 1932, Andrew Mellon is, uh, th- there's this new congressman who, who's been in office for a few years, a few years named Wright Patman, who's a former cotton uh, tenant farmer. And his name is Wright Patman. He's from Texarkana, one of the poorest districts in the country. And he says, you know what? We need to, um, we need to print more money to make the economy better and get it into the hands of workers, of, of people that do things for a living instead of the bankers. And so he writes a law that says that World War I veterans who were underpaid during the war get a uh, basically an accelerated pension or what their enemies call a bonus. And as the Depression starts getting worse, veterans – and there's, there's a, millions of veterans from World War I um, – start to, to protest for it. And they form a kind of Occupy Wall Street type of protest and they start – building encampments in Washington, D.C. And there's tons of thousands of veterans in Washington, D.C. by 1932 advocating for the Patman bill. And the big holdup is Andrew Mellon. And finally, Patman um, files articles of impeachment against Andrew Mellon. And a week later, and everyone's like, oh, whatever, this, who's this loser who, you know, from Texarkana? He's just a farmer. He didn't know anything. And then a week later, he presents the case to the Judiciary Committee and it completely embarrasses Andrew Mellon's fancy lawyers and shows that Andrew Mellon was operating his business from the Treasury Department. Uh, and then uh, Hoover basically fires him immediately and is just like, I can't handle this and sends him to England to be the ambassador to England. And it's this important moment where the where the old order is embarrassed and taken down. And then Hoover tear gasses the protesters, which is a multiracial protest. Um, and he tear gasses them and has the army led by Douglas MacArthur and Dwight D. Eisenhower and George Patton to just run these veterans out of D.C. And it's just like incredibly sad. And when he does that, FDR is like, oh, I guess I don't have to campaign now because he's, he's such a bad politician. Um, but then – when in this in the five months and then there's a long period between the moment when when you win an election prior to to in 1932 and and being inaugurated so it's you're inaugurated in march in the 1930s and so in these five months the banking system freezes up and herbert hoover and fdr are having a bitter battle because herbert hoover is like you have to repudiate all that new deal stuff or i'm not going to do anything to save the banking system and fdr says you know no and so the 
there's an investigation that's going on at the time in the Senate Banking Committee led by a pugnacious prosecutor named Ferdinand Pecora. And FDR basically intervenes to get Pecora to embarrass the bankers, to embarrass the utility men, uh, to embarrass J.P. Morgan. And over the course of right before in National City and right before he gets elected, you know, there's 10 days of hearings on, on National City. And then he gets inaugurated and immediately closes the banks and and uh, and and basically cleans up the banking system and, you know, reopens the banks and the banks are now safe. And it's this just unbelievable moment when you see this kind of catalytic change from a people that did not have faith in their government and felt that Hoover was lying to them, which he was. Uh, to this moment where they felt that somebody, finally somebody in power was on their side. Um, and it's just it's just this extraordinary, I mean, politicians talk about it like a magical switch. Um, but it was part, part of what was happening is the bankers who usually were kind of whispering in the ear of politicians and intimidating everyone, they were on the defensive because of Pecora, because he was embarrassing them, not as like masters of the universe, but as basically a two-bit crooks. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that came out a little bit later was it turns out that J.P. Morgan, who was the most important um, financier, that the the bank, um, J.P. Morgan had died in 1913, but uh, the bank um, had what was called a preferred list. And the preferred list was a, a list of people that were kind of allies of J.P. Morgan that they would sell stock to at basically at, at below market prices. So it was essentially a list of people they were bribing. And it turns out that this list had essentially every powerful person in America on it. It had generals like General Pershing, who had won World War One. It had Supreme Court justices. It had um, every CEO of every major company, every major banker, uh, people in, in uh, politicians in both parties. It had, uh, I think Calvin Coolidge was on the list, although he had died by the time it came out. I mean, it was this incredibly embarrassing expose of power in America. And then out of the PCORA commission and out of that embarrassment came a number of things, a whole bunch of laws on securities and taxes and electric utilities. Um, but also out of that came an attempt to prosecute Andrew Mellon for avoiding taxes. And it turned into a, a whole civil suit. Um, and, uh, you know, PCORA was busy. So FDR had this young lawyer named Robert Jackson from upstate New York, actually put Andrew Mellon on trial. It was a civil, it was a civil trial. They couldn't get a grand jury to indict. So then they just went after him for avoiding taxes. And over the basically up until 1937, uh, Andrew Mellon was either being impeached or he was being put on trial and his empire was being exposed as a sort of as a, a kind of empire of collusion and corruption and crime. And and the resolution of that case, and it's just extraordinary because, you know, Robert Jackson is investigating this empire, right? A real, really an empire. And he calls it the old order. Um, and the resolution of that case is finally Mellon is basically like, all right, I'll, um, I'll pay a half a million dollars. And then his whole empire gets exposed in taxes. So, so it, he concedes that there was, there was a, a problem, right? And, and that it wasn't just political vindictiveness, right? Because this is a former Treasury Secretary. This is somebody putting a political enemy on trial. And then he also gives his wonderful, fabulous, world-class art collection uh, to dedicate a new museum in Washington, D.C., and the money to build this museum, which, which is the National Gallery. And actually, this is kind of a PR thing, because the opening day of the trial, one of the things that Robert Jackson is putting Mellon on trial for is that he has a, a foundation and he has a bunch of art that he's, you know, and he didn't pay taxes when he was, um, when yeah, yeah, it was, money, yeah, it was a scam. Foundation. Yeah. 
it was a scam. And then so the first day of the trial, um, Frank uh, Hogan, who's who's Mellon's lawyer, who's like my favorite. He's this wonderful, you know, D.C. lawyer. And he's like, my favorite client is a rich man who's easily scared. Um, and Frank Hogan says, actually, Robert Jackson is wrong. He does have this foundation. And guess what? He is chosen to dedicate to open a great museum in D.C. with all of this wonderful art. And it's just like this amazing moment. And then, you know, Robert Jackson is like joking around with his people and saying, you know, every time I have a good day and I, I prove something about Mellon, you know, they, they donate another painting. I think they're almost out of paintings by now. So there's like this funny, there's, there's a bunch of rigged media systems going on because Andrew Mellon is helping like the Washington Post with advertising. Like it's a whole dirty game that's just fascinating to research. And it's something I never knew anything about. Um, but that was essentially how the gang fight between the monopolists and the populists happened. And then there were a bunch of laws to break down Mellon's empire, which included breaking up the utilities, breaking up aerospace because Mellon had airline interests, uh, putting constraints on banks, breaking up those banks, um, unionizing Mellon's companies, doing antitrust against those companies like Alcoa. There was a massive antitrust suit against Alcoa that was happening – that was started at the, basically at the conclusion of the tax trial. There was really this just this war – to defeat the domestic oligarchs and uh, and and the, the oligarchs, by the way, who had cartel relationships with companies all over the world, including importantly in Germany, Nazi Germany. Um, and essentially by 1938, FDR had won. Uh, Jackson had won. And, um, you know, there were sit down strikes and then like the country, you know, the, the sort of the generation of business people turned over. It was no longer these old robber barons. It was a new professional group of managers who had come in and said, okay, we get it. We get it. We can't just be greedy um, and, and not, uh, and not take into account other stakeholders. And then the world war two, when, and you know, I go, there's a chapter about it called um, trust busters against Hitler, which was about how we forced um, trust the guy named Clifford Durr, um, who is in, in a, in the government forced um, a, a lot of, companies to basically build up capacity that they didn't want to build up to prepare to fight the Nazis, which is why we were prepared to actually do that. And by the 1950s, you just see a an imperfect democracy, right? It's not a perfect democracy, but it is a democracy. And you have small business formation. You have um, a, a body of antitrust law by that point, which allows private rights of action. So lawyers, you know, you, big companies can't just screw their suppliers. You have union rights so that they can't just, just kill their workers, which they literally were doing. Um, you have this like mosaic, you have a, a regional equalization. I mean, the South was just full of malaria in the 1930s and before that, and they just get rid of that. And so you, you see this incredible flowering of a middle class and a, and a, and a democracy and a, and constraints on, um, on large concentrations of power. And I guess I'll just finish with this story about IBM, right, where, where you see the creation of Silicon Valley uh, because IBM is trying to monopolize and control uh, analog computing because they, they were there were a few antitrust suits. And, and Truman's antitrust chief says to Thomas Watson Sr., he's like, you are a robber baron. And I'm, I'm not going to let you control the technologies of the future. And it was IBM, AT&T, RCA, it's a whole series of antitrust suits that said the knowledge, the patents that you have, the knowledge that you have, those are going to be benefit. These are going to be used for the benefit of humanity, not for the benefit of monopolists. And so that's the germination of the electronics industry in America, unlocking those patent suits. So AT&T, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, AT&T was working on something called the electronic transistor, and they were forced to open up their patent vault. And then you saw 
you know, Motorola and Texas Instruments and a, a bunch of different companies actually just create the um, electronics industry. All right. Now, look, Matt, we're, we're running out of time. So I want to we will simply stipulate the success of the New Deal and American democracy winning World War Two. How do we we have a period of 40 odd years between, let's say, 1932, 1974, where, where we have a democratic commercial and political imperfect but producing prosperity, producing uh, polls that show a majority of the American people having confidence in their government. What happens uh, in the 70s that brings us to where we are now? Yeah, so so in the 1970s, there's a couple of things that happen, the ideas in the, that germinate in the 1950s. There's a new form of history, which is John Kenneth Galbraith and Richard Hofstetter on the left. Uh, they... Uh, they and C. Wright Mills, they heavily influenced the counterculture with this idea that there really is no power in uh, corporations or banks. That's just an inevitable, like banks and corporations just inevitably develop. Technology progress just kind of happens. And big companies, are, monopolies are just natural. And that's this, this method of history is sort of created on the left. It kind of comes out of the state socialist planner types. But it's also adopted on the right in the University of Chicago, which is the libertarian movement, who says, yeah, that's we don't like what they want to do, but we agree with their basic narrative. Power is not a thing. Instead, we need the, the scientists. We need to give this kind of large technical machinery of banking and corporations. We need to give scientists, aka economists, and let them manage it. In the 1970s, the new large generation of baby boomers finally comes to maturity. And they've read they, they're not populists. They've read Galbraith. They've read Hofstetter. They could come out of the counterculture. Instead, they reconceptualize not around not democracy around the citizen, but around consumerism. So that's the Nader consumer rights movement. And they don't they stop caring about small business. They stop caring about big business and power in the business world they, and banking world, because to them, it's like the Pentagon's the problem, not not big business. And they get into the first uh, generation that gets into office is in 1974 after Watergate, where you see a bunch of of um, kind of long haired progressive types. And they don't you know, they're consumer rights oriented. So they don't care about, say, chain stores, which Wright Patman had fought in the 1930s, very similar to Walmart, except it was the A&P. And so some of the first things that they do, well, the first thing that they do is they remove Wright Patman from his chair from being chair of the banking committee. And this is a guy who was the first person to investigate Watergate in 1972. But he had also impeached Andrew Mellon and he had fought against monopolies and big banks for 46 years. And they remove him from his chairmanship because they're like, ah, he's old, whatever. But they're secretly being manipulated by the bankers who hated Patman because he had been fighting the return of Wall Street in the 1960s. So but then the next thing that they do is they get rid of, of laws against against predatory pricing, which are laws that are intended to constrain chain stores and protect the independent business. And what that does is, is the 1970s is the first decade that Walmart explodes because of these changes. And then in the 19, by 1970, Walmart has $40 million of revenue. 1980, Walmart has a billion dollars of revenue. 1985, Sam Walton is the richest man in the country. 
And then in the 1980s, right, they, they, 19, late 1970s, Jimmy Carter gets in and you start to see an aggressive turn towards deregulation. And this, again, this is a Ralph Nader sponsored movement. Ralph Nader is aggressive about airline deregulation, uh, trucking deregulation, railroad deregulation. And that is the moment, right, when the, when the Democrats just turn their back on the New Deal and they re-release the beast of monopoly into the land. And then in the 1980s, you know, Reagan gets rid of antitrust and there's a lot of frustration and anger about how you see roll-ups in all these different sectors in the economy, everything from media to chain stores to malls um, to banks. And, uh, but, but Democrats have, have lost their ability to see power because they've been trained that power doesn't actually exist in business and banking. And they've been trained that business is not part of politics, that questions of politics are, are social questions not questions about markets. All right. So that's what's – it starts with Carter. I mean, it's the Reagan revolution. I mean, privatization, you know, get rid of regulation, uh, th that whole – and the transfer of, uh, you know, the public land, air into private hands and – that's neoliberalism. I mean, it's, it's Reaganism right. is neoliberalism, and it so it's it's the policy of not only Reagan but also of Clinton and the two Bushes and and, and Obama and 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 now Trump. Yeah, that's right. And and it, a lot of it is authored by Robert Bork, who was a, a Chicago schooler, and um, he he basically turned. And the whole goal of the Chicago School was to turn all these areas of contestation and political economy to turn this into a mathematized science and to say, no, no, you guys, you're not allowed to talk about regulations. We have the economists to do models and, and you can't talk about antitrust. We have the economists to do models. and You can't talk about you know monetary policy. We have the economists. And the idea is that you hide your politics in the mathematized language that the citizens can't reach. And that's how they hid it from us, what they were doing. And Bill Clinton, who, by the way, took antitrust law from Robert Bork at Yale. So he gets in office in 92, and you've seen these roll-ups of power, and there's a sort of question of will Bill Clinton reverse them, right? And what Bill Clinton does is the opposite. He doubles down. He globalizes this monopoly power. He pulls it into the defense industrial base. He pulls all the guardrails off of Wall Street. And now, the Democrats are, are, are almost as bad as the Republicans. And so, you know, increasingly commerce is controlled by speculators, right, by speculators on Wall Street in giant banks. It's kind of returned to the 1920s. And then Bush thing um, after after Clinton and then Obama, you know, with, finally. And this, you know, I wrote the book because I worked during the financial crisis. And I, why do we keep screwing this up? And what I realized is that Watergate babies and then all the generations after them learned that the way that you solve problems, the way that you dealt with the inflation and crises of the 70s was you release controls on capital, you concentrate wealth and power, and then you put the technocrats in charge. You get the scientists to tell you what to do. And so in 2008, you had 40 years of this or 30 years of this. And, and what do we do in the face of a banking collapse? Well, it's not a political crisis, so they think, although eventually I realized it was. It's a technical crisis, and what we should do, we should concentrate power and then have the technocrats kind of fix it, right? And that's what Dodd-Frank was, and that's what the Obamacare was, and that's what you saw across the, Ob uh, the Obama administration and the Democratic administration. It's just this idea that we should concentrate 
wealth and power, and then put good people in charge. In fact, that is the framework for Alexander Hamilton, which is why the Obama administration loved the play Hamilton, right? So it's this whole idea of justice that comes from the elite few, the meritocratic few, and the anger that we see today, right? Big tech came after that because they, again, they allowed roll-ups of power, a merger wave that Google and Facebook bought up all their competitors. The anger that we see today is a result of the fact that we, the people, have no influence over governing in our economy and our country because all that governing is done by, say, Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or, or Bob Iger at Disney. And that's we're not we're sort of we in this weird corporatist state where we have to choose whether we want to have a democracy uh, and re relearn how to govern, which I think we're doing or, you know, just let them govern. Uh, and that's a very scary prospect. Matt, I wish we could go on longer. I mean, I think this is an extraordinarily valuable book. And, and uh, I hope many of our listeners will take the time and the trouble to read it. And, and the uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And can I just say one more thing? Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote this book. And, and it's I wrote it to be fun to read. Right. So it's it's not jar. It doesn't have a lot of jargon. It's just a bunch of stories. And the reason I did it that way is because the way that they control us is they use jargon and complexity and boredom to keep us from our birthright and our heritage as citizens of a country. And it's important for us to know that this stuff is about power. This stuff is not that complicated. I mean, everything is complicated when you get down into the weeds. But the actual underlying questions of power and freedom, which are, of course, throughout business, are not complicated. And it is our job as citizens. We have the honor to address ourselves to those questions. And we have the, the ability to educate ourselves. So I wrote this book so that we would know that that is our heritage and that so we can reclaim our sovereignty. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.